Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. Now, in the Gilded Age, it must have seemed unlikely that the United States would ever become a Catholic country, or at least a Catholic majority country. The nativism of the 1830s, 40s, and 50s gave rise to the Know-Nothing Party and conspiracy theories that Rome would command Catholics the world over. The American Protective Society in the 1890s and the Second Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s took over the anti-Catholic crusade in later decades, but it never really went away. The election success of John F. Kennedy in the 1960s bucked the historical trend, and so does today when politicians like Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, and several of the Supreme Court justices proudly pronounce their Catholic fealty. How did the nation go from a virulent anti-Catholicism a century ago to, arguably, a Catholic political majority today? Well, lucky for us, there is a scholar with a book that answers this question, and joining me today is Dr. William Cosson, a history lecturer at the Gwinnett School of Mathematics, Science, and Technology in Georgia. His book, his first, Making Catholic America, Religious Nationalism in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, is an excellent read. It's punchy, it's chock full of research from church leaders and practitioners, and I'm delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Bill. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted. We, we spend a good bit of time on the show talking about religion, actually, uh, mainly about Christianity, and when I say that, I mean Protestantism, and we've talked a little bit about Hinduism. Uh, and of course, Catholicism kind of falls under that umbrella term Christian, but I'm looking forward to delving a little bit deeper today into the Catholic Church and on Catholic theology. Your book really centers on the idea of Catholic nationalism. So for the sake of everyone listening, what is it and who are the key figures in this movement, if we can even call it, I guess, a movement? So, you know, I'm intensely interested in in just kind of the questions around the, the making or I guess remaking of the American nation, especially after the Civil War. Um, you know, when I think um, I and a lot of other historians view that as kind of like a moment of, of rebirth, as Jackson Lears puts it, um, in, the, in the Gilded Age of Progressive Era. And, um, you know, I think Catholics have oftentimes been portrayed as, uh, as sort of outsiders in the larger American story. I think that's probably changing to a degree. Um, you know, there's been recent, you know, books, like one of your former podcast guests, um, Ben Wetzel, like, you know, um, uh, about imperialism. And um, Catherine Moran's recent book on um, imperialism and religion, 
I think are both pointing in the way, you know, pointing to a new trend of portraying Catholics as insiders and in making the American nation. So I was really interested in, in, in seeing how Catholics actually conceived of themselves as Americans. And um, as I was investigating this, I think I uncovered, you know, a story that Catholics were really, really central players in forming the entire idea of American nationhood after the Civil War. Definitely not as kind of ghettoized outsiders as they've typically been portrayed, but as very much, you know, as um, as, as actual, you know, major players in, in kind of the unfolding drama after the Civil War. Yeah, they. I mean, your book is very punchy, too. It's, it's It comes in under 200 pages, but in terms of books that I've read of that size, Yours makes a big statement uh, in that short space and very convincingly, might I add, as well. One one thing was puzzling me a little bit, and that is how many Catholics are there in America in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? What are their numbers? Like, what does the Catholic, the Catholic community itself look like in this period? So it's hard to find exact numbers. So, you know, in later, in the early 20th century, actually, there were a few, um, a couple of American censuses that actually did attempt to count um, religious populations um, in the 1930s. I don't think there were any in this period yet. So estimates are hard to come by. There were actually like, um, there are actually examples of um, of early sociology of religion by Catholics trying to figure out their own numbers. And, you know, based on baptism records, parish records, and kind of early examples of, I guess you call it Catholic religious sociology, um, it, we could definitely say that Catholics are definitely the largest religious denomination in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. I think um, previous generations of historians had oftentimes looked to around 1850 as the moment when Catholics definitely kind of reached that tipping point where they had become the largest community. Um, but more recent studies, I'm thinking here of um, um, a book called The Churching of America by um, uh, Roger Finke and Rodney Stark. Um, they point to like the 1880s and 1890s is the moment when Catholics actually become the largest, but it's really hard to find exact numbers. Um, frequently, you know, uh, um, Catholic parishes themselves will count anybody who's baptized as a member of the church just permanently. So you have to really take those figures with a grain of salt. I mean, so if we're talking about people who actually self-identify as Catholics or, you know, participate in regular worship or go to mass um, or whatever else they use to self-define, the numbers are really, really um, nebulous, but I think it's pretty safe to say they are the largest community. Um, but as far as what they looked like, um, I mean, this is the heyday of you know the post-Civil War immigration boom, and the Catholic Church, just like the rest of the United States, I think you know that's why I'm so interested in Catholicism. I think in some ways it kind of is like a microcosm of of American society. Um, you know, the Catholic Church in particular is so um, heavily characterized by by the immigration boom from Eastern and Southern and Central Europe. So you're starting to see Catholicism become much more diverse itself. Um, it, you know, it's not just the church of Irish and German immigrants anymore. There's also sizable numbers of Polish Catholics and Austro-Hungarian Catholics and Italian Catholics, um, especially, you know, in major urban um, centers in the Midwest and Northeast. So, you know, while there's lots of Catholics in other parts of the country too, certainly the upper Midwest around the Great Lakes and the Northeast and New England are definitely, you know, the hot spots of, of, turn of the 20th century Catholicism. Yeah, it's fascinating too. I mean, I guess there are probably similar numbers of Protestants, but different denominations mean that it's a slightly more fractured setup. And then if we're talking about the Catholic church as a sort of like a, a monolith, does it work out that way with the key leaders in the church? Or is it is there a lot of diversity of thought and, uh, and action, I guess, as well among the leadership? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there actually is much more diversity than has oftentimes been portrayed. And I think so, you know, I think part of part of this is that I suspect there might be in some ways this is kind of, you know, lingering anti-Catholic portrayals of the 1800s, portraying the church as as like you said, a monolith where all of the individual rank and file Catholics just kind of do as they're told um, and follow their 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 bishops and their priests unquestioningly. And I don't think that's actually the case. I'm not sure if that's ever been the case. It certainly isn't now, and I don't think it was was then. Um, there were definitely, you know, really strong ideological differences within the church itself. So if you look at like the hierarchy, for instance, um, you know, like some of the major folks that I look at are who have oftentimes been portrayed as what are called Americanists. Um, those who are much more open to kind of a rapprochement with non-Catholic America, um, really participating in you know politics and economics and social trends of the time. And they're also much more conservative um, um, Catholics um, who are definitely much more of what you might call the ultramontane persuasion, really investing a lot more power in the Vatican and the Pope. And sometimes that translates to a little more separation from American society, which itself might feed into some of the portrayals of Catholics at the time as as being separate and un-American. But I, yeah, I don't I, I don't think that it's it's a simple story of priests speak and people follow. Um, I don't think it's ever been the case. So I think it's a definitely much more internally diverse environment, especially you know this being kind of the heyday of immigrant Catholicism. I mean, this was still an era when throughout Catholic America, you have numerous ethnic parishes. So, you know, in one city, you might see dozens of Catholic churches separated by language and ethnic lines. And this is something of an official policy of the church um, at the time was that you would have, you know, for instance, in certain cities, you would have like a German Catholic church, an Irish Catholic church, an Italian Catholic church, a Polish Catholic church, even within the same neighborhoods. And it certainly doesn't exist anymore today. But at the, the period I'm writing about, um, Officially, it was one Catholic church, but day to day, it seemed like multiple. And that like seems such a core argument about what you're getting at here, because, well, I guess, is American Catholicism contradictory or is Americanism and Catholicism, those two ideas contradictory? I mean, you know, the know nothings of the 1840s and 1850s. We know the history there that they were saying that the Pope and the Vatican had political control over Catholic citizens in America. Yet American Catholics are intensely loyal to the American state and the nation. And what your book is arguing is that they make, you know, in many ways, the state and nation, what, how we know it today. So how do we square that circle? And, and is it contradictory? But it's a question. It's a question that I've considered for a long time, too, because on one hand, like, I don't I don't want to uh, I don't want to feed into like the worst of the know nothing uh, propaganda of the 1830s and 40s. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, there, there do cert, there there certainly do seem to be certain practices that that do render Catholicism at least different. I mean, but I mean, probably the same could be said for any number of Protestant churches, too. Um, so, I, I think if you're looking at the Americanist wing of the church, and I should I guess I should define terms here a little bit in case someone isn't familiar with this, you know, but Americanism. Um, is a I don't know, quote unquote movement. It's hard to describe exactly how how uniform or concrete movement was. At the very least, a certain constellation of ideas that Catholicism and Americanism were certainly not incompatible, um, and that Catholicism and Americanism, you know, should actually in some ways be seen as one and the same. Um, that you know the best of Catholicism represents the best of Americanism, and vice versa. Uh, in the late 1890s, Pope Leo the Thirteenth actually condemned 
in a papal encyclical what he called Americanism. But, you know, a lot of folks at the time who would call themselves this felt that it was something of a caricature of what they were actually teaching, you know, that the, the Pope's condemnation portrayed Americanism as a heresy that essentially said that Catholic Americanism was distinct from the universal Catholic Church. And I don't think that's exactly what Americanists themselves are saying. Um, but what historians have pointed out is that they have argued for a while is that this really kind of rendered American Catholicism sort of moribund for a time, that it basically frightened Catholics away from saying anything that might seen as being out of line with with Catholic authority from the Vatican. Um, so that's what I meant by uh, Americanism to to make it simple. Um, but no, certainly among more Americanist minded bishops and just everyday Catholics, they would have seen absolutely no distinction between their faith and their national commitments, um, that they reinforced each other. But at the same time, I mean, you know, these same Americanists, sometimes they were contradictory. Um, they would also promote like an entirely separate Catholic schooling system for children, saying that, you know, Catholic children should be in their own parish schools, reinforcing kind of the separate, separate, you know, the separation, uh, the Catholic American kind of dichotomy, while at the same time, they're trying to portray themselves as, as one and the same with American. So occasionally it does seem sort of self-contradictory and, you know, um, they're they're occasionally hard to understand, um, and perhaps it's one reason why the movement. I think historians think it sort of just peters out eventually um, by the early twentieth century. It's a great answer, and I'm going to give you an equally difficult question now, if you don't mind, okay. because you've written this great book. But uh, that's one paradox in the book. The other paradox you kind of already alluded to, but I want to uh, dive into give you a bit more time to kind of elaborate on, and that is about immigration. So obviously, immigration is such a huge factor in the Gilded Age. And progressive era, but how much does immigration either set back or accelerate the Catholic co-option of American nationalism? It's a good question. That's one. That's something I definitely explore in the book. Um, you know, something that I was interested in even back when I was in graduate school was you know how did older guard Catholics, those who had quote unquote already assimilated to the American mainstream, you know how did they regard the Catholic the, the Catholic immigrants among them? Um, and it's a much more complicated story than we might imagine. Um, you know, so, so much, I mean, obviously I'm not the first to write about nativism at the turn of the 20th century, but I think oftentimes it's portrayed as, you know, Protestant Americans expressing antipathy to Catholic immigrants um, and Catholics just sort of serving as the, um, I don't get the sort of unwitting victims of nativism without actually in any way shaping it themselves. So what I find in my research is that, you know, indeed, um, Catholic bishops and priests and lay Catholics, you know, of, of quote unquote assimilated communities like Irish or German at the turn of the 20th century, have much more complicated thoughts on, say, Italian and Polish Catholics um, than we might have imagined. Um, in their drive to Americanize the church, some of them do view the new immigrants as something of a liability, um, you know, that if they don't quickly learn English and assimilate themselves to American Moors, it is going to set back their church. So I definitely, I mean, you definitely see, I think, a Catholic variety of nativism. Like, I wouldn't call it anti-Catholicism. It's hard. I mean, can a Catholic be anti-Catholic? I don't know. That, that's a that's a complicated question. But certainly a Catholic could be nativist. There's no, no question about that. And, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that I see emerging at the turn of the 20th century, especially from these Americanist Catholics, is a form of rhetoric that you would see quite comfortably existing in any number of mainstream American newspapers of the time that expressed skepticism about the growing number of immigrants. Um, so you sometimes see Catholics discussing their concern over what they call the refuse populations 
that are making their way to the United States, you know, obviously mirroring the exact same language that would have described their parents and grandparents in the 1830s and 40s. Yeah, it's incredible. And obviously such a big part of that that time period. I want to work through the book a little bit because your chapters are really, they're great and how they're quite distinct. Obviously, you're speaking to, you know, the idea of Catholicism and the nation in all of them, but each one of the chapters really packs a heavy punch. The, the first one, you talk about the situation of Catholics from the antebellum era, but it really kicks off with Grant's administration and the westward expansion of uh, of Americans or white settlers, really. How did Catholic missionaries challenge the Protestant missionaries out west? And what effect did, did the Catholics have on the American or the U.S. indigenous policy uh, and, and on Native Americans? I mean, that's two questions in one, I guess. But um, since you wrote the chapter about the two in one, I think you can probably handle the question, right? Yeah, sure. So, well, I'll just note also, like, like you said, the book, it's five very thematic, differently thematic chapters. So, um, I mean, this was a, a real challenge in just conceiving the book is, you know, I'm technically a very big question here, Catholic Americanism. Um, so obviously I had to be selective or otherwise I could be writing, you know, multiple volumes on this. Um, but uh, I try to move chronologically, you know, from the Grant administration to the Al Smith election, 19, or the campaign 1928. Um, and one thing that I see that, you know, kind of unifying them all together is a something somewhat consistent message that Catholics are in some ways kind of the progenitors or fathers of the American nation. Um, and you certainly see this on the Western missions. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, just as a brief kind of like aside, what really started this entire project was, um, you know, this, this, so as with many academics, the book comes from at least somewhat from the dissertation and the dissertation had a much different focus. I mean, this is like a radically different focus. Uh, it was much less on nationalism and much more about how Catholics made sense of Protestants around them. So that was like the original, the dissertation was called the Protestant image in the Catholic mind, which I just like shamelessly stole the, the title from George Fredrickson and Mia Bay's books, White Image in the Black Mind and Black Image in the White Mind. Um, but as I continued working, it morphed much more into a larger story about, about nations and nationalism. And you know, I still maintain the Protestant Catholic um, interactions in the book, but it, I don't think it's you know the beyond end all like it used to be. Um, so you know, Catholics certainly participate in the colonization of the American West. And you know, again, I'm not saying anything new here that you know religion and manifest destiny, Western expansion, coalesce together, because certainly they, we've known that for since since manifest destiny. Um, but I think Catholics oftentimes are once again absented from from the story and kind of shunted off um, to the margins, um, as, as Catholic historians have have oftentimes put it. Um, so you know, Catholics certainly have you know very legitimate religious motivations. I don't want to downplay that. Like you know, a lot of the folks who go out west priests who serve um, um, on reservations and admissions, I'm sure they have very legitimate uh, religious motivations for baptizing and trying to convert people to Catholicism. But, you know, the the Protestant Catholic uh, rivalry is unmistakable. Um, you know, many of them, when they discuss um, uh, mission churches, it, it, they're using a very anti-Protestant rhetoric, um, portraying Protestants as, you know, the enemies of religious freedom and as the enemies of free exercise of religion, in, in some ways kind of inverting the more typical anti-Catholic rhetoric you'd sometimes see coming from Protestants of the antebellum era. And that's one kind of major um, argument I'm making here is that Catholics really harness themselves to the American nation by way of 
anti-Protestantism. Um, and I think that's just a generally an understudied topic that much more could be done on, you know, in the United States is how, how do Catholics practice anti-Protestantism? So for many of them, you know, combined with their actual religious motivations of trying, you know, to save souls and convert, there's obviously very much a rivalry at play here um, between Protestant missionaries and Catholic missionaries for the control of the Western missions here. And it really does feed into the larger, a larger, um, a larger story of taking control of the American nation and spreading it westward, you know, really controlling who is going to make America after the Civil War. Is it going to be made in the image of Catholicism, aka Americanism, or is it going to be made in the image of Protestantism, which in the eyes of Catholics is an un-American force? And how does that play out for the indigenous populations west? Because that's another big part of that chapter. Yeah. So, you know, that's it was when I was doing research for the dissertation in the book, like um, it, it was fascinating to me to find numerous petitions from um, Indian Catholics, which I was really pleased to see because sometimes those don't always come up, you know, in, in the scholarship. Like so previous scholarship on um, what was called the Bureau of Catholic Indian Missions or the BCIM, which is kind of one of the major major institutional players um, in, in the Catholic presence in the West, um, had very much been an institutional history. Um, really heavily focusing like just on the Washington DC work, which is important, but I, it was pleasing to be able to actually find examples of um, Indian Catholics like speaking their own mind here. But at the same time, it's sometimes hard to uh, hard to gauge exactly how much was mediated or unmediated by the Catholic missionaries. So frequently, for instance, like the you know the um, petitions I was finding in the archives um, were either you know type transcripts or handwritten, presumably in the hand of the actual mission priests themselves so it's always tough like oh, who's how much of this is the priest's voice and how much of this is the actual catholic indian voice it's hard to say um oftentimes it was sometimes disturbing and disappointing but pretty predictable um to see like the protestant and catholic missionaries really viewing like the native americans maybe not explicitly but implicitly as pawns um and that was always kind of a you know disappointing but again expected um portrayal um, you know, like, so I, I said, uh, Catholic natives like have a voice and there are numerous newspapers, for instance, like the Indian Sentinel or the Indian Advocate, where they do actually get to like, you know, write and speak their minds. Um, but re really what I'm seeing like, in the archives is a lot of it is very much through the lens of the, the institutional Catholic viewpoint. Um, you know, seeing the Native Americans as in some ways just kind of caught in the middle of this tug of war. Um, and that's something that, you know, I would like to do more work on is trying more to like say, okay, what did the Native Catholics actually think? Because again, so much of it is hard to retrieve with the sources I was using, which are very clearly like through the lens of, you know, how do we beat the Protestants? Absolutely. There's a great uh, book that came out recently, Christina Dickerson Cousin, called Black Indians and Freedmen about the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And it was a, for me, it was a huge eye opener about the engagement with missionaries uh, on in the American West during this period of expansion. Uh, to bring up another book that showed up on the uh, on the podcast, uh, Ruth Harris's book about Swami Vivekananda, who was the, uh, the, the Hindu um, and mystic, I guess, who came to Chicago in 1893 to the World's Fair and kind of brought yoga to America, right? It's right, a great story. Right. Uh, your book, my favorite chapter in your book is also about the Colombian exposition in Chicago 
that year, 1893. I think most historians and scholars of the period think about the, the White City and the Chicago World's Fair for its grandeur, its architecture, you know, showcasing technology, even showcasing the U.S. as a global power. But what Ruth's book did so nicely was showcase how religion was central to it. And when I got to your chapter, I was so excited to read about how uh, the World's Fair had a big impact on Catholics. So you have to tell us what did the World's Fair do for Catholics and for the idea of Catholic nationalism? Sure. Yeah, it was actually my favorite chapter to write too. So, um, I, you know, when I, um, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, and you know, World's Fairs are a major part of like the Liturgical Progressive Era scholarship. So I became fascinated with them, as I'm sure a lot of historians in our in our era are too. So when I, you know, first learned about the Catholic presence in the World's Fair, I was really excited to see what I could do with it. And you know, um, so Catholics were eager participants in the World's Fair. Um, you know, and, and Chicago is 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 a center of um, of American Catholicism um, then and now. Uh, so Catholics were participants in the world's Parliament of Religions, like you know the first kind of major um, modern ecumenical gathering, um, as you mentioned. You know, where like Hinduism is first introduced largely to 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 American to American audiences, um, and they also have their own uh, Colombian Catholic Congress, um, which was something that was becoming more routine. Um, after the Civil War was Catholics gathering periodically, both lay and clerical together, just to discuss, you know, common affairs of interest. So a few years before there had been a, um, a Catholic Congress in Baltimore to celebrate the um, 100th anniversary of the founding of the Diocese of Baltimore, the first American um, Catholic diocese. And uh, they began planning there, like, okay, what can we do at the Chicago World's Fair, which they knew was coming up? Um, and they decided, well, let's hold a Colombian Catholic Congress, um, you know, this was the quadricentenary of Columbus's 1492 um, voyage to the Americas, and already in this period, you started seeing a lot of um, a lot of American Catholics really starting to latch on to the to the memory and image of Columbus as kind of like the orig original American founder, and really then um, solidly portraying Catholicism as a major force in the forging of of Americanism going back centuries, even before there's an America, there's there's a Catholic America. Um, so for a lot of Catholics, this was in some ways kind of like a public debut as a as a leading force in American life um, was demonstrating, you know, through their work at the World's Parliament of Religions or at their own Colombian Catholic Congress um, that, you know, by way of Columbus, Catholics have always been there. They're not an outsider force. Um, they are like in some ways the original Americans um, really portraying themselves as in some ways even pre-existing the idea of 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 an American nation it was like, here, here's Catholicism. You know, think of the Spanish and the French, like, you know, long before there was a Protestant America, there was a Catholic America. And I think you definitely see this coming through at the World's Fair. And, you know, and by all accounts, like they had a really like congenial um, relationship with a lot of the other, um, a lot of the other religious groups there. And I think that's something that also was, you know, surprising to me, um, but less so as I got into my research was that, again, because of this dominant image for a long time of Catholics as these outsiders, to see them brushing, you know, kind of rubbing shoulders with people, not just Protestants, but non-Christians is surprising, I think, to a lot of folks. But otherwise, it's a pretty it's a pretty positive experience for Catholics. And a lot of the folks who the Catholics who are actually speaking, many of them were from this Americanist wing. Um, these were the folks who were really overrepresented in the planning of the Catholic presence at the fair. And as far as public speakers went, it was almost all like kind of self-identified Americanists, which itself is not surprising to me um, that, you know, they they believed very deeply in you know, I guess the Catholic civilizing mission and the Catholic American mission. And for them, this was definitely a, a chance for them to show off just how American they were. 
So through so many of the different like speeches and papers they give at their different um, at the Colombian Catholic Congress, the World's Parliament of Religions, um, over and over and over, you see the speakers hammering away at the point that Catholicism is Americanism. Americanism is Catholicism. It keeps popping up over and over, even like whether it's an historical paper or a piece, you know, a political commentary. They're constantly pushing this message here, and I think pretty successfully too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Yeah, it's great. It's a great depiction, too, I think, of that civilizing mission. And it's a great segue to the next chapter of your book, which looks at the Philippines. And I, I have to admit that one of my favorite writings by Mark Twain is to a person sitting to the person sitting in darkness, which is, of course, associated with the Philippine-American War. But it's really if you if you read the context and if you actually read the whole uh, uh, document, it's it's a response to Cardinal Gibbons, the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Cardinal. And, uh, and and to Catholic missionaries in, in the Philippines, American Catholic missionaries. How does Catholic nationalism play out in the overseas empire that, you know, we can say starts around 1898 with the war with Spain? Yeah, so, I mean, this this is a very complicated story because, you know, and, and in, your, in your interview with Ben Wetzel um, from last year, you touched on this a little bit, and, and I, I really enjoyed that. Like, you know, it was one of the challenges for Catholics who support imperialism is that, you know, they're explicitly colonizing their co-religionists like it's, it's hard for me to imagine that like um you know the philippines had already been christianized for centuries at this point this um you know so it, it and this is something that it was like, galling to american catholics even those who may have been a little skeptical of of imperialism and certainly there were anti-imperial catholics i mean um and again this is an area where like you know the catholic church has a multitude of opinions i mean there are 
pro-imperial Catholics and anti-imperial Catholics, just as there would have been with any with any other community in the United States. But especially galling to them was the fact that oftentimes, you know, even coming from the White House, like I was just reading a McKinley speech last week where he talks about the duty to Christianize the Filipinos, and Catholics will say, well, they're already Christian. You know, this is this is something that was kind of outrageous to them, that even if they weren't fans of the the, the military conquest, they certainly had to look skeptically at the notion that they were not Christians when they were like, of course they were. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I think Wetzel's right to point out in his in his book and in the interview with you um, that, like, there were a lot of pro-imperial Catholics. Um, you know, they they were able to square away their their misgivings of having to conquer a Catholic country um, and recognize that this was an opportunity for them to once again spread their Catholic American mission westward. So I think like um, if, I don't really see too much of a distinction. And I don't think the the people at the time did between what Catholics were doing on the missions in the West and what they were doing in the Philippines. And this is certainly something that I think historians are you know are aware of with you know the transnational turn in, in history, is that you know these kind of ideas flow together. So you know a lot of the lessons that Catholic missionaries are learning um, on Native reservations, they're applying to their work in the Philippines, and a lot of them very quickly got on board with them. Um, with the McKinley administration's um, efforts to to colonize the Philippines, um, and you know they may have decried um, accounts of atrocities carried about carried out against Filipinos, but very frequently they would have portrayed this as a as a Protestant endeavor, um, and instead Catholics were trying to maintain um, the civilization in the Philippines. So for them, again, like this is an opportunity um, not only to ensure that that. Filipino Catholics stay in the Catholic fold, but also to really prove that, you know, they are at the forefront, um, forefront of these efforts. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up Gibbons. You know, Gibbons is one of the foremost, you know, Catholic Americanists of the time. Um, you know, and President Roosevelt, you know, sees him as a, as a trusted, as a trusted advisor and friend. I mean, certainly, you know, like one of the first Catholic bishops to actually have the ear of the White House. Um, and this is something you see frequently is that, you know, in the course of Philippine colonization, once the American administration sets up its colonial government, bishops like Gibbons or John Ireland from St. Paul really do become like sounding boards for Roosevelt and Taft, you know, about their ideas. Like, and it's something that you certainly would not have seen like before the before the 1880s and 1890s. I mean, to me, it's almost unimaginable, you know, for an American president um, to call on a Catholic priest in the 1820s and say, hey, what's your opinion on foreign policy? Um, but you know, it, it's a different it's a different world. I mean, uh, Catholics have become a major, a major demographic and voting force in the United States by the turn of the 20th century. I mean, it's undeniable, um, and their opinion matters. Um, so, it, it, you know, they they it has to be taken into account. And Catholics themselves are proactive. Um, they are very eager to you know send teachers and send missionaries to the Philippines just to ensure that the Catholic Church maintains its its cultural its cultural power there. Yeah, it's. I mean, that, this is such a fascinating chapter in so many ways, and it's. It's where, and you, you're alluding to this here, I feel like we're skirting around, so I'm going to go straight for it, but the, the issue of race here is critical, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, in your book, you make this, this, this point that, you know, some American Catholics put Filipinos above Protestants in their racial hierarchy because of their faith, right? And that's like, that makes perfect sense, but... It was even more fascinating because of the whitening of other Catholics that was going on domestically in the U.S., like the whitening of the Irish or the right. whitening of Mexicans. So 
Tell us a little bit about the intersection there between race and religion and how that plays out in the context of the Philippines and imperialism, but also domestically as well, just as a part of what's going on to make Americans or hyphenated Americans, perhaps more American. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, and, and you know, the, the story of, you know, the, the whitening in America and the Irish is, is one that's, you know, been talked about by scholars for, for you know, a generation now, at least, um, but very infrequently, I think, have Catholics or I should say it's Catholicism um, been portrayed as an actual whitening force itself. Um, so it, it was remarkable to me oftentimes to see uh, to see uh, American Catholics at this period just kind of unselfconsciously um, engaging, you know, in the same uh, race making that they had often often been the victims of, I guess, in, in the 1830s and 40s. And this kind of, you know, is a, is a callback to what I said a few minutes ago about about um, you know, Irish Americans using the same, the same uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric they would oftentimes have themselves would have been the victims of generations before. Um, yeah, but I mean, oftentimes, you know, you would see Catholic Americanists um, very adeptly using the new changing ideas of of race and race making to their advantage. Um, in some ways, kind of like unwhitening Protestants. It's something that I remember um, I was on a panel years ago um, at Notre Dame, and I remember. Um, like discussing this in the quick Q and A, um, and it was kind of like an, an aha moment to me, like at the time, that like uh, you know, oftentimes Catholics would portray Protestants as as unwhite, even if they were you know, phenotypically white. I mean, once again, pointing out like you know the malleability of of race um, um, in this period, um, you know, kind of equating whiteness with Americanism, and then because Catholicism in their eyes was Americanism, well, then, you know, it's kind of a package deal, white American Catholicism. Um, and this is something that, you know, you would see routinely. And I think that where my contribution is, is that this is not an old story for scholars of of whiteness, but it, I think it is a new one for scholars of Catholicism, where oftentimes, like, the whitening process is sometimes seen as something that's carried out by native-born Protestants, presumably, but I think Catholics also play a huge role here. And certainly like, you know, their experience on the Western missions um, and in the Philippines is playing into this. Um, this is kind of like um, similar to uh, uh, Paul Kramer's argument in Blood and Government that, you know, like these, this race making is happening trans-Pacifically. I think that's, you know, one area that until recently has not, has not been, um, has, been uh, has been understudied is the Catholic role in that. Um, rather than being themselves whitening, they are, you know, not passive recipients, they're active, active uh, players in the whitening process. Yeah, brilliant. Well said. Um, Catholic nationalism also, we have to talk, I mean, seeing as we're sort of talking about race, I think we, you know, we've dwelled on that a little bit, but I, I also want to talk a little bit about women and minorities more broadly. So sure. um, how did Catholic nationalism treat women and other minorities? Uh in their own crusade for acceptance so that's to, that to me is another one of these paradoxes that we're yeah. talking about here they've got this their own crusade is for americans that are non-catholic to accept them as you know american and not just that but that they're a driving force in shaping the nation but it seems to me that you know as they're asking for acceptance they're just not practicing what they preach as you pointed out there in terms of race as well women are not part of the liturgy or the the priesthood at this stage native americans are treated as inferior how i mean how in the world are catholics clearing this double standard it must seem apparent to them right but then also that 
Yeah, I mean, how does that work? Like, well, I mean, you know, okay, so like, uh, um, the historian Kathleen Spurs Cummings um, has a great book, um, New Women of the Old Faith, which you know really is you know, the, the masterful treatment of um, of Catholic feminism at um, in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And I think you, you know, I touch on this a tiny little bit in the um, in the Colombian Catholic Congress um, chapter, and I had, and then I wrote an article that that sprung from this. Um, um, in Journal of the Gilded and Progressive Era a couple of years ago about Catholic women in this period. And, um, you know, I think a lot of Catholic women, you know, were just as much equally participants in this as Catholic men were. Um, so, that, you know, there were like Catholic women at the Columbia Catholic Congress, like um, um, Catherine Conway, for instance, who were like really public Catholic intellectuals um, at the time and play a really formative role in shaping public opinion. Um, so for a lot of Catholic women at the time, um, Catholicism was uh, the most... Um, genial and welcoming faith to be a new woman in the turn of the 20th century. Um, so I think, you know, there the difficulty is broadening the definition of feminism. So, you know, for Catholic women um, at the time, not serving or being able to serve in the priesthood was not in any way um, a diminishment, diminishment of their of their femininity or their, or their personhood. Um, and oftentimes they would portray Protestants as actually like the enemies of women, that it was Catholicism, you know, through their, the veneration, for instance, of Mary that, you know, really was the, uh, um, was the largest force for, for upholding kind of the white virtuous womanhood ideal that's still so popular after the antebellum era. And I've seen this, like going back in research to the antebellum era too, is that so often, you know, a lot of anti-Catholic rhetoric was premised on the idea that. Catholic priests uh, were dangerous to um, to pure womanhood. Um, so, you know, thinking back to like the convent um, scares and the convent tales of the 1830s and 40s, like Mariah Monk and Rebecca Reed, that you know, these were like really dangerous spaces. Catholics were very adept at like turning this back on Protestants and saying that it was actually, you know, the Catholic, like um, Catholic nuns who were the paragon of, of womanhood and the Catholic church, like has this exalted position for them. Whereas, you know, Protestant society is the one that's actually the threat um, to uh to womanhood and you sometimes still see this rhetoric like you know even in into like the 1920s and 30s of the catholic church being the actual um respecter of women and protestant churches being their being their denigrator yeah wow that's um it's impressive to think about the logical leaps that have to be done though to to get there yeah I, <laughs> something that's oh yeah that, that a lot of times when i'm you know doing the research i'm like how could they how do they believe this but then again i mean you know the past is a different country. So <laughs> well, the past is, and I guess faith is too. I mean, we've, I've talked to a couple of, you know, scholars of religion, and this is one of the things that they often say is that, you know, we have to understand faith in a different way than we understand logic, I guess. And that, that's, uh, I think that's uh, putting yourself in the shoes of the people of a different time is sometimes also putting your shoes, your yourself in the shoes of someone with a different faith. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to speak to the breadth of your work as well, because, you know, we, we, we kick off in the 1860s in earnest, I guess, but, you know, we move all the way up until 1928 in the election of Al Smith. Um, what's the change in that time period? If you had to describe the changing for the change for Catholicism and Catholics, and then also what's the punctuation mark at the end at 1928, when Al Smith becomes governor of New York, what's the what's the punctuation mark to end kind of your book and say, you know, this is where we've come to? Okay, so, um, well, the 1920s itself is a critical decade. Okay, so this is obviously like the decade of, you know, I mean, 
at least as far as like the chronological span of your of your podcast goes, this is you know, the end of the of the progressive era. I mean, you know, like I, I mean, I've never seen many scholars say it ever goes past the ni- 1920. Um, but uh, you know, obviously the 20s is a critical decade um, for for immigration history. You know, with the quota systems being put in place by 1924, and this is going to have obviously a heavy impact on um, on uh, on Catholic population. I mean, you know, that's basically it makes it almost impossible for um, most of the largest Catholic immigrant countries of the period to send many more immigrants or migrants to the United States. So, you know, this is sometimes seen as like an era um, by Catholic scholars is like, this is where the assimilation really begins in earnest. I think that's been the typical portrayal for a long time is, okay, no more, um, you know, new immigrants coming in from, you know, largely Catholic countries. And this is when you really start seeing Catholics like making the move into what we call, I guess, the mainstream. Um, like, so you know, I've seen really good work on this. Like there's a scholar, um, Anthony Burke Smith, who has a book called The Look of Catholics, where he, you know, argues that by the 1940s, you start seeing kind of a major change in like, you know, in, in Hollywood depictions of Catholics in a much more positive light. Um, so like Bing Crosby's portrayal of like priests and, you know, and going my way in the bells of St. Mary, he's this like, you know, he's this like respectable figure and he's, um, he's like the, the image of, of, of modern manhood and he's a Catholic priest kind of unimaginable portrayals of Catholics before this. So I think what my book is, is trying to say, though, is that I don't think that the assimilation drive begins in the 1920s. It might be accelerated, but I'm thinking that's why, you know, my book, you have to go further back because you can already start seeing kind of this Catholic mainstreaming happening decades before it's usually been portrayed in scholarship as kind of a 20th century um, phenomenon. So the 1920s, you know, can be seen in some ways, though, as a step back for the Catholic Church, because you see in the 20s is alongside the immigration restriction, you see a revival of older forms of, of anti-Catholicism that, you know, I think for a long time, Catholics had taken for granted, had just like disappeared. I was pointing out in the, in the earlier parts of the book, um, they have this really big success in, in, you know, in really becoming a respected sounding board from, you know, presidents and politicians. Um, and they are the largest, like, individual American Christian denomination in the country. So they do have like a, you know, a, a really legitimate power, um, you know, especially in American cities and in Democratic Party politics. But at the same time, it's got to be disheartening to them where you have like the revival of the second Ku Klux Klan in 1915, which, you know, makes anti-Catholicism a part of its program. Um, and uh, it's almost like, wow, they thought they just got past, you know, the days of the American Protective Association, the APA in the 1890s. And here we go again, 20, 30 years later. Um, and then like, you know, curiously and bizarrely, Almost 100 years after the last flare-up, you actually have a revival of like these convent tales, as they're sometimes called in the 1920s, like tales of escaped nuns who were escaping, you know, the clutches of of evil Catholic priests and sisters, and you know, in 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 uh, in nunneries and convents, and it's almost just like uh, a replay of what had happened 100 years before. And actually, you know, I found like a letter in one of um, in my research. I think I talk about this in my um, my chapter on the Philippines. Um, see, the last chapter, or the last chapter. Uh, where they talk about how, you know, the spirit of Mariah Monk, who was the, the, the famous, um, you know, escaped nun of the 1830s, is, is alive again in like the 19-teens and 20s. So I think for a lot of Catholics, the 1920s, is like, you know, it actually could be seen as a pretty disheartening decade with the revival of all of these you know, forms of anti-Catholicism that had previously been thought to be largely extinct. But, you know, they basically, um, once again, they, they, they turn it around. Um, and oftentimes you'll see them again, like portraying Catholic priests and nuns as, you know, the paragons of masculinity and femininity, um, and they attack uh, anti-Catholic forces head on. 
um, and they use the courts and also the court of public opinion to make their make their case. So I mean, quite literally, in some cases, they actually take you know these supposed ex-nuns to court and try to silence them. Um, and this is something that like you, you know does harken back to an earlier period where in the 1830s they were similarly confident. So I think this is actually you know in, in some ways it's a story of change, also a story of continuities, like a lot of the same anti-Catholic prejudices, but also a lot of the same Catholic confidence in response that they're confident of their place in the United States. And they're ready to go out and prove it. And I think what makes this period different from others is they actually get a lot of non-Catholic support. So like, you know, in, in the case of the revival of anti-Catholic literature, you see a lot of non-Catholics like standing shoulder to shoulder with the Catholic Church. Or, you know, for instance, in the 1920s, um, you know, Oregon passes a compulsory school act, which is pretty explicitly, a, you know, a, a, a drive to shut down Catholic parochial schools in the state. Actually, Lutheran churches join Catholic churches in legal fights against it. So this is something that it's like, you know, looking at the grand scope of, uh, of of Christian history after 1517, it's kind of amazing to see Lutherans and Catholics standing together in the 1920s, um, fighting for the same for the same campaigns for for religious toleration. Um, but to refer back to the Al Smith um, mention, that is, you know, obviously like in terms of the narrative of my book, like the capstone of the book, and it might seem like a curious place to end it because I have this whole history of you know, ascendant Catholicism from the Civil War forward. And then it ends with this like crushing defeat in the 1928 presidential election, where I think for um for critics of the Catholic Church, this was very satisfying. Uh, see, Catholics, they're they finally have um have gotten their just desserts. They've been obliterated uh by by uh by Herbert Hoover. Um but I think that you know it it doesn't really end on on a, a pessimistic note for Catholic Americanists because like immediately after Smith's loss to Hoover, you once again see the revival of that very confident Catholic Americanism, um, once again, portraying the Protestant Americans as the actual foes of liberty. And in this case, like, you know, as the promoters of, of, of religious intolerance in the 1928 campaign and portraying Smith and the Catholics as, you know, the real, the real um, uh, exemplars of, of religious toleration in, a, in kind of, a, you know, in a, in, in a time period that's aiming towards more public pluralism. You know, we're about to see the, the birth of Judeo-Christianity and the birth of what Kevin Schultz calls tri-faith America, Protestants, Catholics, and, and Jews. Um, and uh, and Catholics actually see, like, I think the Smith campaign is a learning opportunity, um, not not to, you know, see this as a crushing defeat, but as an opportunity to keep keep pushing further for um, for for Catholic mainstreaming. Okay, so picking up with that topic of looking at the grand scope of Catholicism, we've covered a number of decades here. But I'm going to push it a little bit further. And this is a bit unfair because your book doesn't cover the contemporary. But the podcast, one of the aims of it is to connect the past with the present. And so from the 21st century, it does look as though Catholicism has a special place in U.S. politics. And I'm just talking here about some figureheads, perhaps. But obviously, the president, Joe Biden, is an outspoken Catholic. The former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, regularly talks about her Catholic faith. faith. Um, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States is, I think, a majority Catholic now, which has got to yeah. be the first time in history. So how do we look at, you know, from 1928, Al, Governor Al Smith running for president, all the way to today, how has that arc changed, morphed, transformed? Where are the paradoxes? Are they still the same? Have they changed? So, yeah, well, I'm not a specialist in, in this time period. I certainly have thought about it and written about it a little bit. Like, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in 2023, superficially looking at the Catholic Church now, it's almost like unimaginable, I would imagine. Well, maybe not. I think to a, some some Americanists, like, you know, John Ireland, 
this was the reality he was aiming for. It was like, perfect. He said, this is what we're talking about. You see, people have realized finally that Catholics are America. Uh, Catholics are America. I mean, like you said, like when over half the Supreme Court is Catholic and Catholics are like massively overrepresented in both houses of Congress, um, you know, uh, in, in, compared to their numbers. I mean, Catholics are still today something, I guess, like at least, um, I think something like 20, 25% of the country is 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 like at least ostensibly Catholic. Um, so the numbers themselves haven't really changed, like, you know, uh, compared to 100 years ago, but certainly in, in terms of like holding positions of power. Yeah, the Catholic Church is obviously in a different place, a different place now. So I think that I think that um, that was certainly something that was probably in the, at least in the back of my mind when I was writing this is because I, I know like a lot of people are looking for that, you know, usable past and you know, how does it connect to the to the present. And I think that there are you know a lot of like lessons to be to be learned here. Um, you know, I think that my book is is an example of how a ostensibly outsider body can make itself an insider body. And clearly, I think Catholics have have proven that. Um, you know, and, and obviously the 60 election of Kennedy is kind of like the hallmark moment where it's like everyone's like, hot oh, Catholics have Catholics have arrived. And he's still fending off attacks against his faith. I mean, you know, one of those famous speeches in his campaign is, is to the is to the you know Greater Ministerial Association of Houston, where he has to defend his Catholicism. Um, something that like Smith had to do in 1928, but Kennedy just does it much more successfully. And you know, part of the reason might just be that Catholics had in the 32 years between those two campaigns had become just much more accepted and mainstream. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, the Hollywood portrayals are more more positive. Catholics also in World War II, just like in World War I, serve um, way out of proportion to their numbers in the population. And this certainly, I think, makes a difference. And historians have written about this, that this, that, you know, the World War's experience is one that definitely, you know, gives Catholics much more of a purchase on kind of acceptance is because they prove their Americanness, you know, through military service, which has, you know, been a theme for a lot of a lot of marginalized groups in American history. Um, and I think, you know, the 70s is also, well, the 60s and 70s are also kind of critical decades here, like looking more internationally, the 60s is the era of the Second Vatican Council or Vatican II, um, which, you know, plays a huge role in, um, in, in advancing Catholic acceptance. But in some ways, like a lot of what you see coming out of Vatican II are things that like the Americanists were, were aiming for in the 1890s or 1900s is kind of just much more of a rapprochement between Catholic and non-Catholic America. You know, and so for listeners who are familiar, you know, Vatican II um, really, you know, kind of charts a course for the Catholic Church to enter into the 20th and 21st centuries, you know, which popularizes like the vernacular mass um, and, uh, you know, brings back like deacons for the first time in 1500 years or something like that. And kind of gives much more, uh, much more of a say in everyday governance for lay Catholics. But this is something that also like had been promoted pretty heavily by Americanizing Catholics in the 1800s. So I think for, you know, I would imagine, and it's can't read the minds of those in the past, but I can imagine, you know, Americanists in the 1890s, like looking at these these developments and saying, hmm, it's not bad. Like we've we've achieved the acceptance that we said we were we were owed 70 years before. And then in the 70s, like, you know, with um the Roe versus Wade decision, that's when you see like the really in a previous period, almost like bizarre alliance of of Catholics and evangelicals, like um, in the in 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 the uh, in the pro life movement, and I think that's like a major a major story of like what explains how Catholics have become so accepted today, when like you know, um, you know, Catholic pro life speakers, you are tremendously respected and in demand, you know, by evangelicals, and it's like this is something that you know I think for a lot of folks would have been just completely unimaginable in the 19th century um, ever to ever to think of these groups like actually coming together but it clearly you know um, has produced a pretty pretty
pretty powerful movement, like with the fact that Catholics now, like you said, like make up such a large part of the Supreme Court. And you know, and Catholic justices play a really big role in the in the in the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year. I mean, you know, um, Alito who writes the opinion is is one of the Catholic justices. And I don't think that you know that that's I don't think that that's coincidental. I think that Catholics have really achieved like the mainstreaming that that they have were fighting for 100 years ago plus. Which makes your book an even more important story. I think that much of what this podcast talks about is how the Gilded Age and Progressive Era was so transformative. I think much of what your book talks about is how it was particularly transformative for Catholics and their perception in the United States. So, Bill, for that, thanks a million for coming on the show and talking to us about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.